And this is KPCW. Good morning. I'm Leslie Thatcher. 8.06 on this Thursday. It's February 22nd. 23 degrees and cloudy here in Old Town Park City. Also reporting 23 degrees in the Heber Valley. On the phone with us from the ABC Forecast Center, meteorologist Thomas Skiboy. Good morning. Morning, Leslie. Happy Thursday or happy Friday Eve mm -hmm. to you. And as we round out this work week, we're finally going to settle into a calmer stretch of weather after seeing some pretty active weather through the last several days and really over the last week where in places like at Park City Mountain, we've totaled over 40 inches just within the last seven days. So if anybody's heading up to the resorts today, plenty of fresh snow to enjoy. We will hold on to at least a slight chance for a few stray showers as we go through today. But if I had to put a percentage on it, maybe 10 to 20 percent chance with first some mainly light snow if we do see anything up around Park City. But this morning, we are also seeing some foggy spots even throughout portions of the Wasatch back. So while it is quieter out there this morning, maybe factor in some extra time just in case. But by this afternoon, we should see gradually improving conditions, partly cloudy skies around midday. And then we'll probably see mostly sunny skies by this afternoon as we make our way towards the early evening. We'll see a daytime high in Park City coming in around 37 degrees and we'll top out right around 39 degrees down in Heber. Tonight brings mostly clear skies and definitely a chill in the air as the overnight lows will be dropping into mid and upper teens, 18 degrees in Park City. And then for our Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, each day will likely bring mostly sunny to partly cloudy skies. Should see should be beautiful weather if you want to go out and spend some time outside on Friday. We'll see a daytime high in the upper 30s in Park City, dropping to 20 degrees on Friday night. And then for our Saturday and Sunday, with our winds becoming more southwesterly, our daytime highs will begin to climb just that little bit more. Should be in the low to mid 40s throughout the Wasatch back on Saturday. And then by Sunday, we'll likely see a daytime high in Park City right around 45 degrees. So definitely warm for this time of year, but I think that we've gotten used to mild temperatures so far this month. We will be in store for some pretty big changes by the looks of things, though, early next week. On Sunday night, we'll introduce a slight chance of snow with the overnight low falling to 31. Then on Monday, a storm system will be approaching from the northwest. The daytime high before the storm system arrival likely climb into the low 40s. So depending on the timing and the moisture, there will be a chance of rain and snow. But once that system moves in, colder air will start to move in quickly. So as we go throughout the day on Monday into Monday night, any rain that we might see would become all snow. As we see the overnight low on Monday night drop to 22 degrees and snow looks likely on Tuesday with a daytime high only coming in at 29 degrees could drop into the single digits briefly on Tuesday night before we bring back more potential for snow through the middle of the week with a daytime high coming in at 30 degrees. Based on what I'm seeing at this point, the storm system coming in early next week will be much more traditional, much colder air as we talked about. And we could see some decent accumulations for our mountains to just being more than a few days away. We got to continue to watch the models and just fine tune the forecast as we get a little bit closer, Leslie. Okay, thank you. And taking a look at the backcountry and the fun with us from the Utah Avalanche Center, we've got Trent, good morning. Hey, good morning. Um, yeah, under mostly cloudy skies out there, the temperatures have finally cooled off, which is nice. It's about 15 to 20 degrees across those upper elevations. Uh, winds are actually pretty chill, which is nice. 10 to 15 miles an hour across those upper elevations as well. The storm totals are pretty impressive. Um, you know, even though it's not snowing a lot in the valleys and, you know, we're getting a mix of rain in the upper cottonwoods since Valentine's Day, we've had roughly 57 inches of snow with
with 5.29 inches of water. So very impressive. Uh, in the past four days along the Park City Ridgeline, 10 to 17 inches of snow with one to two inches of water weight up there. Uh, yesterday, we had four avalanches to the backcountry, and I'm only going to talk about one just because time is short. But um, the, the one that caught my attention most was in Caribou Basin. This is right on the backside of Brighton and really not too far from the Park City Ridgeline or even like the Guardsman's Pass area. And this avalanche fell two feet deep, 100 feet wide, and it broke down to a crust on a south-facing aspect that had some faceted snow buried um, just, just above that crust. And really, that's our main problem for today is on those southerly-facing slopes. We had that crust buried on Valentine's Day. We've had multiple avalanches reported and triggered on this layer. And so this is now our new persistent weak layer, and it's going to be on those southerly facing slopes. And here it is likely that you could trigger an avalanche one to four feet deep. So um, kind of a sketchy situation there. Um, across the range and really across northern Utah, it's been storming for four days. It's been nothing but strong winds and heavy snowfall. And, you know, even just within the past 24 hours, we picked up another five to 10 inches of snow. So... What this means is our snowpack has not settled yet. Um, we just removed the loading event in terms of snow and in terms of wind. And as Drew said last year, you know, the glue is yet to dry. So if you think about that, our snow still needs time to settle and bond together before we can really get out and get after it. The good news is though that this storm was amazing for us and in due time, if we let the snowpack settle, we're actually heading towards a really stable snowpack. I know I talked about that week layer on the south. For today and the next few days, it might be unstable, but we're actually heading in, in a really, really good direction. Um, so in summary, the avalanche danger for today is considerable across all the mid and upper elevation slopes that face the south. So that would include east, southeast, south, southwest, and west. And here you could trigger a persistent weak layer that breaks down to that crust that I was talking about that has some faceted snow just above it. Okay. And faceted snow, just remember, is a weak layer. Go ahead, Leslie. No, that's fine. Just thought, thought you were wrapping up. Oh, got okay. it. No worries. And then I just wanted to finish off by saying we also have a considerable danger for that wind-drifted snow across those upper elevations. So if the people are getting out, please be careful today. Okay. Thank you, Trent. Stay tuned. Coming up, we'll be checking in with Summit County Council Member Chris Robinson. Later on, the chair of Utah Women Run, Melanie Hall, with details about tonight's training session to help the public better understand Utah's caucus and convention system. Later on, I'll be talking with the Chief Program and Education Officer for the National Ability Center, Tracy Meyer, along with athlete Orlando Perez. They'll have details about the upcoming Huntsman Cup. Then stay tuned for Cool Science Radio. Today's guests include Cian Harding, Emeritus Professor of Cardiac Pharmacology about the new science of the heart. Then a conversation with Salvatore Augusta and Daniel Brooks. They share their hope for humanity's survival in their new book, Our Darwinian Survival Guide. All of that coming up this morning, right after the local news hour from 9 to 10. You're on the phone now with an update from yesterday's Summit County Council meeting. I have Council Member Chris Robinson. Good morning, Chris. Hi, Leslie. Let's start with the legislative update. Seemed like that was the bulk of the meeting um, interest. Uh, a bill... Um, we missed the number banning the county from 
punishing employees who misgender other employees. It seems like this could turn into um, legal protection for bullies. So what are the implications here? The county could not remove people for creating a, a toxic work environment? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that question. It, the Some of these bills, I don't... Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I think we ought to wait and when they're fully cooked, and then see if we can figure out how to comply. But uh, okay. that one, I don't have a comment on. All right. Well, there were also a couple of bills that could also have adverse effects for transgender people in governmental and government-funded spaces. So, I mean, where do you start? I mean, do you comply? Do you not comply? I mean, how do you ensure inclusivity? You know, uh, I, I I think we believe in the rule of law, and if we don't like a law, we need to change it. Um, I don't think we should get into the situation where we pick and choose which laws we obey, which seems to be the topic du jour in certain circles, uh, at the federal level at least. Um, I I think we need to see where the dust settles on these before jumping to a lot of conclusions and, and see whether they really endure and whether they are really enforceable. All right. There is also a bill from uh, Summit County's Representative Kara Berkland expanding the use of transient room tax for Summit County. This sounds like good news. Yeah? Yeah. It. Uh, I mean, the, we're a third-class county, which does not at all imply quality but more size. And uh, there are six classes of counties in this state, and the fourth through the six-class counties have more latitude with their transient room tax proceeds to spend them on things that mitigate the impacts of tourism instead of just promoting tourism, which is the third, first through the thirds purview with the TRT. And so, yes, this would be helpful. There's um, a lot of... Uh, I'm not, I, maybe commotion is an adequate word going on around the TRT. You see uh, state leadership wanting to have a statewide TRT tax that would help fund a major league baseball uh, complex in Salt Lake, and add it, you know requiring each each county to raise its TRT by a certain amount and then take it. And so there's there's Berkeley. Uh, Kara Berkland's bill that you mentioned to allow us more latitude with the third class, you know, getting the same benefits four through six get. And and so it, it, there's a, there's kind of a lot of talk around TRT and somewhere, uh, you know, it'd be great if we could do that. I, I'm, I'm the Berkland bill. I'm just not sure where it's all going to settle out. We've, we've wanted this for a long time and at least, this big conversation around TRT. Some of it may be bad. Okay, so that what I understand is that uh, Berkeley's bill then would include third-class counties. Is that, yes. is that correct? It, it, whether or not it has any traction remains to be seen. The ones, the, the ones that have traction are the ones sponsored by the this, this leadership. Those, those are the, and whether or not the, this this one that's late filed by Representative Berkland will go anywhere. We hope it does, but there are other things going on around TRT is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, the, for those four through six class counties that currently 
are allowed to, to have more flexibility with the way that the TRT tax dollars are spent. Um, what are what would some of those items that Summit County then would be interested in using the money for if in fact this passes, rather, you know, to try to mitigate the impacts of tourism and not just expanding it? Yeah, I think, you know, the fourth through the sixth can use it for things like emergency medical services, public safety, uh, some even transportation uses. Uh, you may have followed us that we recently sort of revamped our emergency, our EMS in this county, and, and that's a pretty big, I, I think the county's spending two or maybe $4 million a year on EMS. It's a pretty big deal. Um, so I, I don't recall all the other provisions in the fourth through the sixth, but it would certainly give us a broader palette. All right. You know, and that, and that, that would be helpful instead of just promotion. And we can use a, a third of the money now that we collect for capital projects, including recreational facilities, and we've done that. Right now, we split the TRT on a 70-30 basis with the chamber. With their getting the 70%, we get the 30. The county retains the 30 for, we've used mainly for capital. All right, um, as you mentioned that uh, it's House Bill 562 that would raise funny, uh, funds for the new Major League Baseball Stadium and Fair Park District. Um, it would involve increase in the TRT by about 1.6% across the state. and. It sounds like the county is kind of opposed to this, um, just making Summit County then more expensive to visit, really with no benefit. Um, you're on the uh, Utah, uh, uh, at, you know, the, the the board for the UAC. Um, yeah. What are other counties saying about this bill? Are, do they feel the same way? I, I think a, a lot of them do. The, originally, there was a proposal to just raise it to two by two and a half percent in the seven counties that surround Salt Lake County with the assumption that there was this nexus around the Wasatch Front, right, that would should be supporting the Major League Stadium uh, or made the MLB. Um, it's certainly St. George and uh, Washington County is a long, long way from any baseball and uh, I think, in fact, one of them spoke up about it recently. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's problematic. The, the concern is that we're going to price ourselves out of, uh, of you know, take us, make us non-competitive uh, with respect to surrounding states when, when uh, visitors are considering where to go to spend their you know, discretionary monies for for vacation, and if it, or for corporate, um, you know, conferences and things. If 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 it's fifteen and twenty percent tax, you know, you add everything up, the sales tax gets to be pretty big. Yeah. So this ex this house bill wouldn't have that exemption for big corporate retreats to compete with other resort towns. Uh, I don't. I think it's just straight across the board. Doesn't. I don't. I don't know of any exemptions. Right. It's just a question of when you reach a tipping point, you just keep adding onto the sales tax. We like the sales tax in many regards because it is paid 
especially this TRT, it's paid by visitors, right? I mean, unless you're spending a lot of time in, in the hotel room, you're not paying it if you live here. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, it's, a, it's a nice source to deal with the impacts of tourism, but you can break the camel's back with too many straws. All right, uh, there's another one, Senate Bill 258. This is targeted at Grand County, home to Moab, and it seems like they're having their own disagreement with a potential developer, and that developer also went to the legislature to get a bill sponsored. Basically, I mean, is this what happened with Dakota Pacific, uh, the Prince's Old Town Home, the Utah Film Studio now happening in Grand County as well? Um, I... You know, I don't know much more than what you said. Is this is this the one that allows a uh, property owner to do a pre-municipality? Basically to incorporate, yeah, a preliminary municipality. Yeah, that, that, those, there's been, you know, hideout, independence. A lot of these um, cities that independence is one in Wasatch County really hasn't taken off, but they were spawned by creating legislative... Uh, call them loopholes or means by which uh, landowners can incorporate without much input from the surrounding county or citizens and can set their own rules. And uh, that, that of course, um, causes local government and citizens some, you know, quite a bit of concern because uh, it it doesn't end run around, you know, the, the rules that we've worked hard to put in place to assure uh, orderly development and to and to find a balance. Okay, uh, let's see. Wanted to talk briefly about the uh, Dakota Pacific meeting. That's going to happen today, 3 p.m. at the Richens Building. Another work session. Uh, Dakota Pacific has had a week now to process the counter proposal by the County Council. What do you expect to hear today? Well. Um, what I ex- what I expect to hear and hear maybe two different things. I I hope that they will provide a detailed response as to what they can do since they said they couldn't do our counter proposal. Okay. Um, so was that counter proposal for you a negotiating move or is that a real line in the sand? Uh, I I think it um, it's. It is, we are in a negotiation and, and I don't think we've given any ultimatums, but we feel strongly about many elements of that counter proposal. Is there, are there many ways, you know, when you're in a dynamic situation like this, there are many ways to solve problems. The, the one, the solution we came up with is one, there may be others. Um, you've asked about offsetting the cost of affordable housing without upping the market rate units by putting in different types of businesses. Um, has Dakota thought that that would work? You know, we, I'd like to explore that further in, in coming meetings. The, um, the, the HTRZ legislation and the application of HTRZs in other parts of the state, if you study them, they they create, they use tax increment to uh, subsidize, in some cases, affordable housing, where they where they buy down. Uh, you know, if if uh, if there's a gap, they call it that the, that you the developer can't afford to do the affordable housing, then it 
then this tax increment is used to fill that gap. And uh, I think we really need to study this uh, this DPRE project and, and look through, look at it through that lens and really understand what what that gap is. Why why what what does it really cost in dollars and cents to build affordable housing there and why and and how how else can that gap be filled than just saying we need more market? And what about the argument that cutting market rate units for rent then means including for sale properties that many employees couldn't afford? I mean, wouldn't more for rent properties in this location be better to lessen the commuters? Um, I'm not going to answer your question as best I can with reference to what they've proposed. Their plan, so-called Plan C, has townhomes and condos that are for sale product. They're not detached, they're attached, but for sale product. Um, that it also has multifamily apartments that are for rent. Um, the Certainly, there's a need for both, but I, I, I personally think it's difficult to take the for sale product and limit it uh, for uh, make it affordable housing. You know, you either have to, you can't regulate it by AMI, so you have to regulate it by how much it can appreciate per year and put limitations on who can occupy it, and it gets more complicated. So I, I do think that... Uh, the rental affordable housing is better, but the the the, the amount of market and a for sale and for rent product we've yet to figure that out. They have some of each in their Plan C, and and how that translates into something that ultimately might work is yet to be seen. And where are we with? Uh the proposed solutions of, with UDOT. I mean, it seems like the staff had some ideas how to revise the option where 224 is kind of sunk into the ground with the overlay. I mean, are we going to see more discussion on that? Well, I, I've i said in, in the public meetings several times that we're probably a year early for really being able to glob on to some UDOT solution for 224 the the three alternatives they have one of which is as you describe is the fly under the sink 224 they're they're half baked and uh udot's process is that they're going to have an alternatives report that will will give their data on these three alternatives and then they'll have public comment period and then that which is going to happen fairly soon like maybe in like less than a month where they'll come out with this report, then there'll be uh, some 30 or more day comment period, and then they'll continue to work on a, on a preferred alternative. And, that will, and, and then, you know, sometime in the fall or maybe a year from now, they'll say, okay, this is what we think we want to build and have a record of decision. And so there's not, there's not a lot we can do now. We can, during this comment period, we can propose alternatives and say, oh, we think you know, if you combined A and C or if you did X, Y, and Z differently, and they can put that into the hopper and see if anything comes out. But uh, we're just, we're, we're, we got a timing problem here. Yeah. Um, 
The aspiration has been to go arm in arm to the state legislature, Summit County with Dakota Pacific. Are we even close to doing that? Well, we we first to to link arms. We first need to uh, decide which alternative we want, and you know, and and UDOT has a process for choosing that, as I described. So we we can't really get behind an alternative that doesn't exist yet. I mean, there's these three out there. And then the second part to it is in order to link arms, we've got to have some meaning in the minds as to what the project is. And, you know, the, and, and those two things are what we're still wrestling with. Okay, and Chris, I've got to leave it there. Anything else that you wanted to add real quick? No, I, I think that's more than enough. Okay, thank you. That's Summit County Council Member Chris Robinson, and again, the meeting with Dakota Pacific, the work session is happening today, again, 3 o'clock at the Richens Services Building at Kimball Junction. Utah Women Run is offering a free training session tonight, understanding Utah's caucus convention system. On the phone with details, I have the chair of Utah Women Run, Melanie Hall. Good morning, Melanie. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so start by telling us what Utah Women Run is. Um, we are a nonpartisan um, volunteer uh, board um, as a part of the Hinckley Institute at the University of Utah. Um, we were established in about 2011, um, formerly under the name Real Women Run. Um, but since our move to the University of Utah, it made sense that we became Utah Women Run. But we work to train um, and mentor coach women to run for public office or um, leadership in any level. So we also coach for looking for boards and commissions um, appointments as well as community advocacy and policy work. Yeah, so any idea how many of these trainings or sessions that you do year-round? Uh, yeah, we, we hold a handful um, each year and uh, each year we look at new programming to see what we could be um, doing different or are there um, salient or timely topics that um, are affecting our communities that um, we want to provide a training for? Usually we have one larger training um, in the winter months. This, this year it will be March 16th. Um, but we decided that the caucus convention system was definitely something that we wanted to get out in uh, with the public and help them better understand. Okay, and we'll get to that in just a sec, but um, how is the organization funded? Uh, we, it's fundraising. Um, we are not funded through the University of Utah, though we are part of the Hinckley Institute. And that means we rely on um, the generosity of donors. Um, we try to um, keep our events as cost efficient as possible, um, as well as inexpensive. So it's not creating any barrier to um, someone that wants to learn how to navigate the political process and successfully make it to office. Okay, so tonight's training, when and where is that going to be? It, um, we have two options tonight. It is in person at the Hinckley Institute at the University of Utah. Um, and we do still have some room if you'd like to join us in person. But one of our um, goals this year is to do a better job re reaching the entire state, um, particularly those rural parts. And so we have a virtual option tonight and registration is still open if you'd like to join us for this free event. Okay, so it's taking place what time? It begins at 6 o'clock, though you can check in sooner than that. 
um, and it runs about 90 minutes in total, including the breakout sessions from our party leaders. All right. Um, do people, people do need to, to register either whether they're coming in person or online because you have to send them out a, a link? Yes. Um, if you're um, coming in person, we can certainly take care of that at the door, but pre-registration is, is helpful for us. Um, but for sure, you're going to want to register in advance so that we can send you the link to join the sessions tonight. Okay, we will post that um, in the online report, but can you tell us where somebody would, would register? Sure, we are at utahwomenrun.org, um, and then click the events link and you'll see tonight's uh, training. Okay, so who, who have you got doing the training? We have a great group tonight. Um, there are three parties doing caucus convention system in Utah, and we have two of the leaders um, this evening. We have Diane Lewis, the chair of the Democratic Party in Utah, and Rob Axon, who is the chair of the Republican Party. In addition to that, we have the de deputy director um, of elections from the lieutenant governor's office, she uh, Shelley Jackson. And so, each are going to talk um, about what what is the caucus convention system in Utah, and and it is different by party. So depending on um, who you're caucusing with, there are different rules and processes that are involved. Hence the reason for the training. It it isn't universal across um, the state, and we want to make sure that people best understand how to get involved. All right, can you give us the Reader's Digest version of how the caucus convention program works? Sure. Um, historically, caucus conventions uh, were less convention and more just neighborhood gatherings. They were places where you and your neighbors would get together and discuss um, candidates and, and what their policy um, stances were and, and how you felt about that. They have evolved in Utah to be party-based. And not all parties hold a caucus convention. Um, and they, they certainly have evolved and developed their own rules. But the idea, it is still your neighbors that you're gathering with. You meet in a specific precinct that is based on your location. And um, you, you'll go to the location they've identified for your caucus system. Um, I do know the United Utah Party is doing theirs also virtually. Um, I'm not sure about the other, um, the Democrats and the Republicans, if they'll have a virtual option. But it's a lot of fun to show up in person. Um, it's definitely always a great idea to get to know your neighbors and, um, you know, practice civil discourse. Talk about the things that you care about and that are important to you and find the candidate that best represents those um, concerns and values. So uh, caucuses are coming up in Utah on March Fifth, um, and is the is the biggest item of order here that delegates will be voted on? That is an important part of this process. And again, each party handles their um, delegate appointment or selection differently. Um, and there are both county and state delegates. Um, we we do send delegates to Washington D.C. as well to be a part of the national process. And so if that is something that you are interested in, this is a perfect opportunity to get into a little more depth and specificity of how the parties do that. All right. Is it that the delegates are voted every four years or are they 
is it more often than that? Uh, it's 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 about four years, yes. Yeah. So if you are a delegate, you're not always a delegate. You could be outvoted just based on what would happen at one of these caucuses, huh? Absolutely. And, um, you know, we tend to see delegates um, being selected because they've been engaged with the party and understand um, what are the issues that are important to the party. And so it's if you don't think you're ready to be a delegate now, it's still time to get involved. This is how you become engaged in the political process and the decision-making of your party. Yeah. Um, and why are delegates important? Uh, again, they go on to the, the state and national convention to do what? Um, they help select the candidates that are going to be supported by the party on the ballots. That's a big deal. So if you're concerned about um, candidates that are making it to the ballot or being s selected by your party, then this is a place where you can honestly um, help affect that change. You can raise concerns. Um, but certainly, if you're not showing up and you're not becoming engaged, you're letting others make that decision. Yeah. Now, can a candidate basically stack delegates to ensure that they get that 60% of the delegate vote and basically what eliminates a primary? Uh, yes, um, the candidates often court these delegates and um, it may not be a perfect system, but it is the system. And so if, if, again, if you're not getting involved or choosing to volunteer in these ways, then you're leaving it to someone else to make that selection. Okay, again, uh, it's basically starting at six o'clock um, and then goes on to about what six thirty or so or you, in um, terms of the online we have a, yeah. yes um, no the whole event will still last 90 minutes okay. we have breakout sessions so when you register you can indicate which party chair you would like to um, join their breakout session and learn specifically about the the practices for their caucus convention by party um, so we will break you out into um, these sessions um, if you're in person or online so we do encourage you to uh, make time and join us for the full 90 minutes we feel like it's going to be really helpful information not to mention the chance to ask questions right um, you had mentioned uh, an event also coming up march 16th what's that so um, since 2011, Utah Women Run has held what we um, previously called our winter training. We always held it in January, but we were always running up against the legislative session, and it kind of made it hard to get um, any of our elected officials to help present or speak to our attendees. So this year, we're holding it on March 16th. We're calling it our annual training, but it's um, it's for the most part, a full day training on a Saturday at the University of Utah, where we have brought in um, women from across the state who have run for office and they can help teach others um, the ways that they're successful um, in, in winning uh, their campaigns. Um, and it, uh, we also cover public advocacy, how to be an effective um, advocate in your community. We covered the discussions around public policy, how to be engaged in those dis discussions. Um, 
Uh, this year, we're, we have a session focusing on boards and commissions. There are literally hundreds of boards and commissions in Utah that have appointments for not only industry-specific um, experts, they are looking for members of the public. And it's an important role because those public members represent consumers in the state of Utah. And so um, we really encourage people to get involved there. It's a great opportunity to serve um, uh, either the organization or the um, people of Utah. So boards and commissions is a part of that. Um, we also usually have a keynote session and um, moderated lunch discussions. And so it, it's just a really impactful full day of training um, to sort of help people get uh, their campaign, their issue advocacy, their um, opportunities for boards and commissions just to get them off the ground. Yeah. And um, kind of just off the top of your head, I'm sure I, I wouldn't know this, but in any idea in terms of what the, the percentages are when we look at our own state legislature in terms of men versus women who sit in the House of Representatives or the Senate? Yeah, um, it's about a quarter, give or take. And in fact, it's declining. And so we really want to see some gains there. When women are at the table, um, we have a different perspective and we're often really good problem solvers and, and can do that in a way that is considering all parties and individuals at the table. Um, but we are starting to see those numbers decline. Um, I do want to mention Dr. Susan Madsen um, out of Utah State, um, the Women's Leadership Project just published last week um, a white paper on the status of women in Utah politics. And I encourage anyone to go take a look at that. It, it not only focuses on um, local um, uh, stats, it's looking at where we are versus national stats. And if you see those numbers, it's, um, it can be discouraging, but um, for us at Utah Women Run, we find that that, that gives us some uh, motivation and the inspiration to continue to do this work. Okay, great work indeed. And I'm, I'm assuming that this is not just for women tonight. Men could certainly register if they were interested in as well. Absolutely. We are um, welcoming anybody tonight. Okay, people can get more information at utahwomenrun.org. Melanie Hall, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you. The 35th Annual Huntsman Cup coming up next week, and in the studio to tell us more about it is National Ability Center's Chief Program and Education Officer, Tracy Meyer. She's joined by one of the athletes who will be competing, Orlando Perez. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. So, Tracy, we'll have you start. Uh, just tell us what the Huntsman Cup is. It certainly has enjoyed some amazing longevity here. It sure has. 35 years at our home mountain of Park City. Typically three days of racing. The first two days are giant slalom, and then the second or excuse me, the third day, we usually run two slalom races, depending on the snow. Looks like we're getting some snow, so we may have a little bit of adjustment there. But we'll see up to, you know, close to 40 athletes potentially here, some first first time on this race arena and trying that, and then Paralympic athletes and those that are looking to kind of get those points adjusted to make the national team. 
Okay, so it is a pretty big deal in terms of the racing schedule, right, to get the, the points? To it is. It is definitely a, a big-level sanctioned race that uh, certainly our home team looks um, looks to um, hosting here. And those that are traveling, we have athletes from Canada joining us, and uh, the, park, the team out of Winter Park will be here as well. All right, I think I read that this is going to be held on CDs. It sure is. That's a that's a major run. I mean, that's World Cup. We're talking about yeah. elite athletes here. That's right. They're getting ready for, um, you know, for nationals and and looking to hopefully compete in, in a few years at the Paralympics. So you got to get on those big hills to to get those skills ready to go. Okay. Well, Orlando, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you're in a wheelchair. I mean, how what, what what's your story? Hi. Oh, uh, my name is Orlando. Um, I am 39 years old. I was 19 when I was in the army, and I had a fall, and the fall with the rocks I hit my spine and caused a tumor in my spinal cord. Uh, after the removal, I became a paraplegic. So I now use a wheelchair and um, adaptive equipment in order for me to ambulate and do sport. Yeah, so where are you from? I am ori originally born and raised in Puerto Rico. And once I started adaptive sports through the VA system, the veteran administration system, um, I started discovering wheelchair basketball and basketball got me uh, you know, into some international competition with Puerto Rico national team. And uh, at a VA event, they took me skiing once and I just fell in love with it. Okay. So you've been skiing then for what? More than a decade then? Yeah, more, like. more than a decade. And um, uh, once I retired wheelchair basketball, I decided, you know, I want to find a place where I can ski all the time, and uh, I found the National Ability Center. Yeah, so did you play many sports, though, before before the accident? Yes, uh, I used to play uh, basketball and soccer before my accident, but I was never in an elite kind of level. Everything was just uh, high school or recreationally. All right, and so how did you then get involved with the NAC? Well, when I decided to retire from basketball, I found the NAC because I wanted to ski with other adaptive skiers and, you know, learn how to do it properly and just have more peers. Um, it wasn't, I joined the team with the NAC and then it wasn't until 2018 where I raced my first Huntsman Cup and it became from just hanging out with the racers to like, you have to try it. Uh, Huntsman Cup was my first race. I got hooked. From there, uh, with the help with the NAC and the coaches, we determined that Puerto Rico needed to be represented at the Paralympic level. And we started collecting points and finally make the Paralympic Games in Beijing 2022 with the help of the National Ability Center and their coaching. Yeah, because that's not one of the places you would think <laughs> Olympic, <laughs> Paralympic skiers come from, right? Where it's no. warm all year. Yeah, I was the first uh, Paralympic winter Paralympian for Puerto Rico and it was a big big accomplishment not just for my island but for the National Ability Center because it, it was a lot of um, roller coasters in order for us to make it happen and the NAC had a big part of it even at one point where they thought they were gonna um, it was not gonna happen they were taking the spot away the NAC had a lot to do making um, phone calls making we made a how you call it when people we did vote. we had to pull together a petition, a petition um ultimately and you know it's all about never giving up right whether it's on the race hill or in following those goals and orlando did it yeah so mm -hmm. where's your home base um i live in um bountiful 
oh, right okay. now. So okay. I commute to the NAC every day and train every day. We we are on, on the hill already at nine o'clock in the morning and we take a break and we don't finish until one and then watch video and we stay together as a team in the afternoons and do some um, relaxation workouts and stuff uh, through Zoom and we just stay active and uh, the NAC just doesn't give you a dream. They make they, they want you to dream, but they want you they help you pursue it. And that's the that's the difference from the NAC and every other part I've been to. Um, because other places just they dare you to dream. But then how am I gonna get it done? What the equipment is so expensive. Uh, our our monoskis are you're talking about four or five thousand dollar pieces of equipment. Not everybody can afford that. The NAC have them, so you can come out there and uh, try them out, um, learn how to do it. They help you how to get your own equipment eventually and and just be an independent skier or, or a Paralympian, however you want to do it. So are you going to be competing in all three days, both, both the GS and the slaloms? I will be there all three days. Exactly. Yeah. Do you race downhill as well? Uh, I don't do downhill. I only do technical, so I'll be doing GS and slalom here. All right. How's training going? Training is going great. Um, the snow uh, finally started being in our favor lately, so we've been able to get more training in. But uh, the coaches are really um, in it. You know, they they come up with different things to do. If we cannot get gates, we do a lot of different other stuff on drills to get ready for the races. All right. So, what's your best your best result? Um, the Paralympic Games. Getting to the Paralympic Games yeah. and um, GS. I love GS mm -hmm. and. I just love the NAC, love the people there. Okay, so the competition is happening next week, when? And Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Uh, typically race time about 10 o'clock, but as we all know, based on weather conditions and, and that sort of thing, but we'd love for people to come out and cheer on our athletes and really have an understanding of adaptive sports. So it's free, come and cheer everybody on or take a look at the website and see ways that you can volunteer and help us out. Okay, well, good luck to you, Orlando. Thanks Thank for making so the drive down. Um, Tracy, I just also want to spend a, just a minute or so on the uh, annual Red, White & Snow fundraising event, and that's, again, of course, going to make things happen for folks like Orlando to yes. be able to compete in, in, in this. Uh, big fundraiser, when and where is this happening? Yeah, so 20, this is the 20th anniversary for Red, Red, White, and Snow. And as you mentioned, it is a big event for our programs to help fund our scholarship program and for us to continue to say yes um, in breaking down those financial barriers. So we'll be kicking it off um, on March 7th. Uh, so 7th, 8th, and 9th, you can go to redwhiteandsnow.org to see the tickets that we still have available. As a local, you know, it sells out. So you want to get in there quickly. I think there's a few spots still there. Uh, and what a better way to support the National Ability Center to come out and have good food and wine and ski around. Um, and you don't want to miss the 20th anniversary. There's some fun things planned. Okay. So you mentioned there are still some tickets available. There are still some for a few of the events, but I'd encourage you to get on quickly. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, and it's great. I mean, because it's not it's not cheap. I mean, it's everything's pretty expensive. It it is. So if, if that's, you know, something that doesn't work for you, there are other ways to support, as I mentioned, by volunteering and coming and helping us at the event um, or at our programs. But certainly understanding that that money is well spent. Uh, you know, our program fees only cover about 30% of our actual cost. Uh, and for 
individuals to be able to come out and participate in recreation and gain those benefits, it isn't cheap. And so the scholarship program provided over $600,000 in scholarship last year, and more and more people need our services. So we need to continue to grow that scholarship fund. Okay. Uh, you did mention volunteers. People can, are you still looking for volunteers for both the race and, and the we, red, white, and stuff? Yes, we do still have some volunteer spots available there. Um, and in all of our 20 programs, we use volunteers year round, almost every single day. So there's lots of opportunities to give back. Okay. Well, I finally made it into the McGrath Mountain Center. It is stunning. So great job there. Yes. We're glad you were there. And we're, we're so lucky and excited to host Huntsman Cup there this week, too. We'll be doing awards there and meals there and having a space that is fully inclusive. will be the first time in 35 years that all of our athletes will be able to be in the building. Okay. Anything else you wanted to mention? No, we're just so thankful for the community. Orlando, you did such a great job of talking about it's all about community, whether it's at the NAC or in our Park City community. So we're thankful for the ongoing support. And if anyone hasn't visited the McGrath Mountain Center or hasn't been out to our campus, please give us a call or stop by. We'd love to give you a tour and make sure you know all of the opportunities that we have. Okay, Tracy Meyer, Orlando Perez, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Well, a family has filed a lawsuit that after a 10-year-old girl fell 30 feet from a Park City Mountain chairlift and her father jumped to help her. KPCW's Parker Malatesta has the story. A legal complaint filed this month in 3rd District Court alleges employee negligence led to the girl's fall from the Iron Mountain Express lift at Canyons Village and her serious injuries. The lawsuit states the 10-year-old girl was celebrating her birthday with three friends when they boarded the lift back on December 16th 2020. Her father and two other friends got on the chair right behind them. The girls couldn't pull down the safety bar and just after boarding, the 10-year-old slipped from her seat and dangled from the lift as it continued up the mountain. The filing claims Iron Mountain Express was under the supervision of one employee at the time. The girl's father and others yelled to the employee for help. They said the lift operator acknowledged the girl hanging from the chair but didn't immediately stop the lift and she traveled up 300 yards before falling 30 feet to the ground covered in rocks and brush. Fearing for her daughter's safety, the documents state the father jumped off the lift to help her, but was knocked unconscious and broke his pelvis, hip, ribs, and wrist. His daughter had serious injuries to her abdomen and hip. Alleging a failure to properly train and supervise employees, the family is seeking damages from Park City Mountain owner Vail Resorts through a jury trial. Vail has yet to respond in court. Park City Mountain did not respond to KPCW's request for comment in time for this report. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News.